Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Napoleon Assist. It's day nine of Waterloo Remembered, and I have another fantastic double interview lined up for you. Today we're looking at Waterloo Remembered, the Mythbusters, and I'm joined by two highly respected historians of the Napoleonic era: Gareth Glover, whose multi-volume, um, how do you describe it, Gareth? Is it an anthology of sources, or is it something else? No, I suppose that's probably the nearest thing to it, but it's just it's it's just a collection of anything and everything I can find regarding Waterloo. I mean, it is spoken about in hushed terms. It's one of the great resources in terms of contemporary letters for the time. And we should say that you've written a whole, whole load of other um, very well-received books on the Napoleonic era. And we're also joined by Andrew Field, who is a particular expert on Waterloo from the French perspective. How have you both been? I'm fine, thank you. Yeah, looking forward to this. Yeah, I'm fine as well. Tell us first of all a bit about your research interests. Well, well um, funny enough, my my first interest in Napoleonic Wars was Waterloo. Funny old thing, and that was really the introduction uh, to the wars. But having read a couple of books on Waterloo, I thought I knew everything that there was to know about Waterloo, and moved on to other Napoleonic campaigns, and only really came back to it later when I started writing. Um, I started my first book on Talavera in the Peninsula War, and then when my publisher spoke to me about what I was going to write about next, they were very keen for me to write about Waterloo, and um, because for them, of course, it's uh, probably the bestseller. Um, and I said, well, there's nothing left really to be written on Waterloo, and I know I can tell you that was about 15 or 20 years ago, and how wrong I was. Um, at that time, I had a little holiday home in France, and uh, I was coming back by rail. And um, looking for something to read, I bought a French magazine which said Waterloo on it. I said, that's oh, that's interesting. And inside was a French perspective of Waterloo and a number of French uh, accounts of the battle, which I'd never really thought about before, the French perspective. And so that got me tracking those down. And that's really where my uh, interest in the French interpretation comes from, um, rather than the, than the British. And people can read the books that you've written about it. Tell us firstly about a couple of your titles. Um, well, I, I, I've written four books on Waterloo uh, or the campaign. The first one I wrote almost inevitably was about the battle itself. Um, and that was written, oh, I started writing that about 10 years ago now. And I suspect like many authors, I suspect like Gareth, if I was to start writing it again, it would be uh, perhaps a, a different book. Uh, because of course, since then, I've learned so much more uh, about the battle. Um, and then, of course, I, that sort of took me on to the uh, Quatre Bras, because of course, the same people fought in the, in the two battles. So I was reading about Quatre Bras while I was researching Waterloo. So that took me through Ligny and Grouch's um, performance out on the, the right flank. And then finally, of course, 
the uh, route and retreat back to, to Paris. So th those four volumes cover the French perspective uh, pretty much, and, th and that's where I've been up until now. Gareth, what about you? Um, well, I came into it just a, a similarly to Andrew. I've always been interested in the period, um, but myself going into the archives and looking around came from, did I say it, my question on academics because I was getting lots of works which uh, produced snippets of accounts and I wasn't convinced that perhaps what they were trying to portray was actually what the soldier was actually saying in the first place. They were, shall we say, manipulating the accounts slightly. Um, so I started looking at the archives and finding new uh, sort of archive material on, on all periods of the wars because I'm interested across the board. Uh, but then one publisher actually said to me, oh, how about putting, seeing what that is to, to you know, tap for Waterloo. Is there anything new out there to find? Go and have a look. We'll do a volume. And that, of course, started the Waterloo Archives series off, which started in about 2012. And we're just passing volume 10, which is actually out. And I've already got three more volumes of stuff ready to go. So it just shows the amount of material out there 99% of it has never been seen before. It's just sitting in archives, which I find incredible that historians of this great battle have just never used in the past. Absolutely, and it's also so incredible that there is so much out there. It says a lot about the, the fact that Waterloo was deemed to be such a significant event that people were writing about it in a way that they hadn't written about other battles of the period. Yeah, very much so. And I think the other th big factor is that um, it's often sort of, you know, blandly said that um, soldiers didn't write to that period because they couldn't, they couldn't read and write. Uh, well, um, you know, the estimates I've seen is by about Waterloo, the literacy was about 60% in the UK, uh, because you've got a lot of people that uh, got into the, sort of the new churches, should we say, and there you have to be able to read the Bible yourself, etc. So reading has come up dramatically, and you can see that by Waterloo, uh, where there's only a smattering of soldiers' stories before that, suddenly there's absolute masses, because a quite surprising number of them were able to write and write home from France to say what had happened to them, which is, as I say, it's a goldmine. It absolutely is. I want to jump straight in at the deep end. What's the most frustrating Waterloo myth that both of you find yourselves having to counter when you talk to people about battle? Um, okay, well, I sort of thought about that. And of course, the reality is there are so many myths still that surround the battle. Um, and so inevitably, I thought I ought to choose one from, from looking at things from the French perspective. Um, so I'm, I guess mine really is the the French perspective of the attack on Hougoumont. Now, I hasten to say, I may look at the French perspective on these things, but I, I'm not a French apologist or, or a Napoleonic uh, apologist either. Uh, what I've tried to do is track down what people saw for themselves and see what we can draw from that. Um, most of the British accounts, A, put very much emphasis on the defense of Hougoumont by the British guards. Um, and secondly, say there were hardly any defenders and they were attacked by the whole of, of General Weil's second corps. That was about 12,000 men and those 12,000, uh, sort of over 25% of Napoleon's force, were tied down to beating themselves uh, into a pulp against the walls of Hougoumont. Um, and so really for me, all I, the, the message I've tried to get out there is that that isn't true. Um, yes, I'm not suggesting that, that Hougoumont uh, that the French should have tied down so many troops around Hougoumont. The reality is, though, the number of troops that were involved in the assaults on Hougoumont was much smaller than those that generally accepted um, by many of the modern accounts of the battle. Essentially, the Royal Second Corps consisted of three divisions, uh, and pretty clearly a division and a half of that were involved in the fighting around uh, Hougoumont. The Jerome's, Napoleon's brothers, um, first division, uh, the strongest division in the French army, that was trashed around Hougoumont, absolutely no doubt about it. Um, but there was a, another brigade from Foy's uh, division that uh, was involved in the assault, and Foy in his memoirs talks about feeding units into the fight. Uh, some people suggest that 
the whole of the division was deployed there. But we know, again, from his accounts and other accounts, that at the end of the French cavalry charges, uh, Ryle was ordered to attack the British Ridge. Um, and he used a division and a half of that, Bakru's division, which had not been committed at all, uh, and the other half of Foy's um, division. So a, a division and a brigade attacked the British Ridge uh, to the east of Hougamont, um, towards the end of the battle, so at the end of the French cavalry attacks. And if you like, for me, that proves that only the other half of the corps could have been tied down and involved with the, with the French fighting around, around Hougamont. So I think, yes, 6,000, should they have deployed 6,000 on Hougamont? Almost certainly not, but it certainly wasn't the 12,000 that many, many uh, histories uh, claim. Well, I suppose we've, there's always been the claims of the Grand Battery. Uh, and I think that the discussions and the arguments and that would probably go on forever. And I can guarantee that probably Andrew and I wouldn't agree exactly. Um, but one of the things I have got a big issue with is, is, is actually a, a more modern myth, which is that more, more recently we have a lot more um, historians coming out with the statement that the Grand Battery had to be on that mid, middle ridge, should we say, halfway between the two ridges, um, because of the sort of the sort of the abilities of the cannon of the time, so they've made that decision almost the fact that the cannon had to be brought forward to this forward ridge. Um, now, all of the evidence I've seen, including the evidence from Andrew's books as well from the French side, actually really don't agree with that. In fact, there is virtually no evidence of cannon being on that front ridge. There's a, a, apart from a few, uh, just a couple of batteries, um, and yet it's really has taken hold this one uh, and this is not you know it's it's in Mark Adkins book Mark Adkins book is a fantastic book but unfortunately that's one of the myths he's picked up on and I'll put forward and it really has taken a hold in the last 15 years and it is really very hard to break down now uh, and yet yet you know when you look at the the evidence for it in the archives there is just nothing nothing at all to actually confirm it. In fact, almost every bit of evidence that is confirms that it was actually on the main ridge, the French ridge. Uh, whether it was a grand battery or not is another issue, but it's the position of it was there. Uh, and yet, and I find that very frustrating as, you know, we're already fighting enough myths. I can do without new myths being brought in as well. You don't need people to- I, I agree, actually, I, I do agree with you, actually, Gareth. Um, and. Uh, I, I'm, the thing that always galls me a little bit is this whole discussion of how many batteries were in the Grand Battery. And I, I didn't, again, I don't think we'll ever know that because I think guns were lost through the cavalry, the British cavalry charges perhaps, and other batteries were sent to replace them. So it was probably a movable feast. But whenever people say, what was a Grand Battery? I, my question is, what is the definition of a Grand Battery? How many guns make up a Grand Battery? And, uh, and so people are arguing whether there were 80 guns right down to, I think, about 50 guns or maybe even less. Actually, whether that constitutes a grand battery or not is probably irrelevant. It's just a number of batteries that are put together uh, to form one large battery. But it, certainly there's no definition of a grand battery that I can find anywhere. No, to think that uh, you know the, the number of cannon deployed was not that different from on the other side of the battlefield the real side so at the end of the day you know why is that side not classed as a grand battery if you're going for the same definition i think at the end of the day the idea of a grand battery if you're going to call it a grand battery was to concentrate the fire of all those guns onto a single spot in the enemy line that you wanted to attack um, and as you say, the British guns were across the whole of the front, um, but, they, but obviously they were, they were ordered to, to aim at the infantry columns rather than a single point. So for me, a grand battery was supposed to aim at a single point. Well, of course, they didn't have many targets. No, exactly. Exactly. But as I say, you know, I, I don't think we'll ever get through that one, particularly as you, you rightly say, it, it, there is not enough evidence yet. Uh, to confirm in any way how how large the batteries were at that stage and and what what constituted them at any stage, it's it's more the this this movement of it across halfway across the battlefield um, that 
you know, particularly as it, it's actually described as having been done without any form of protection from art, from infantry or, or cavalry. They just literally, these guns deploy on their own halfway across the battlefield. And apparently Wellington's men just watch them do it and actually then take, take the, uh, the beating from them. You know, it's, it's, it goes beyond belief in some ways, that's all. Yeah, I'm with you. Let's talk a little bit about the, the build-up to Waterloo. To a casual observer looking at the aftermath of Quatre Bras and Ligny, and particularly the French army's relative inactivity on the morning of the 17th of June, when Wellington's army was isolated at Quatre Bras, it's easy to make the accusation that Napoleon squandered what he had gained at Ligny. Do you think that's a fair assessment? Yeah, I have quite a, I, I do. This is something that I've looked at in, in some detail, uh, because again, even a lot of the French commentators accuse Napoleon of, of wasting the victory of Ligny and not uh, doing something positive on the morning of the 17th. Um, so it's not as if it's just modern historians with all the benefit of hindsight that point the finger at Napoleon and, and say that he wasted his victory, uh, that he did nothing on the morning. Grouchy was one of his fiercest victories in, in Grouchy's latest, later publications um, about not getting any orders to pursue the Prussians until lunchtime. Um, but actually, when you look at the, at the accounts, the eyewitness accounts, one thing that Ney didn't do from Quatre Bras was keep Napoleon informed about what was going on. Um, and therefore, Napoleon was expecting Ney to seize Quatre Bras as he'd been ordered to do, and then deploy his troops down the road onto the rear uh, of, the, of the Prussian army so that the Prussians would be destroyed. Now, of course, we know that that didn't happen. Napoleon didn't really know what was going on at Quatre Bras, so much so that he sent one of his aides-de-camp General Flau, uh, over, who spent the whole of the day um, at Quatrebras with Ney and didn't return to Napoleon until about seven o'clock on the morning of the 7th. So until then, Napoleon didn't know what had happened over at, at Quatrebras. All he knew is that Durlong's corps had suddenly appeared, held up the battle for him, and then disappeared again, leaving only a small force um, behind. Um, and so how could he make a decision on what to do on the morning of the 17th until he knew the situation at Quatre Bras? The reality was, and he almost certainly knew this, is that the Prussian army had not been destroyed. There was a corps of 30,000 troop, Prussian troops that had not been involved in the battle, which more than compensated for their losses at Ligny. And therefore he, he potentially had an army bigger than his own ready to fight again in front of him. And then if Ney had sort of been beaten, he had potentially Wellington's army marching down the road onto his left flank. So until he knew the situation, he couldn't make a decision about what to do next. Ney's report didn't arrive until lunchtime on the 17th. So until lunchtime, all that Napoleon knew is what Flahou had told him. And of course, Flahou had left Quatre Bras early in the morning of the 17th. So what had been happening all that morning, whether Wellington had uh, withdrawn, whether Wellington had advanced, what Ney was doing was a complete question to Napoleon. And bearing in mind, he was in the middle of two armies, either of which were, were bigger than him and joined would have definitely crushed him. Now, it's a bit harsh to be saying he should have done something a little bit more dramatic than he actually did. So also, you've got to bear in mind that his army, the one that had fought at Ligny, was exhausted. They'd used up all ammunition the day before. They'd had a really hard battle against the Prussians and most of them were really not in a, uh, a fit state to conduct offensive operations on the 17th. Uh, the Sixth Corps and the Imperial Guard, who hadn't effectively been uh, engaged, that, that was his ultimate reserve, and it was too early to send them off. So I would say that, yes, the fact that he wasn't able to do anything on the 17th had a big impact on the, uh, on the campaign, but criticising Napoleon to waiting until he had the information that he needed before he could make a decision on what to do next, I think that, that that's um, more than a little bit harsh. I would agree fully with what you're saying. My only counter question is why didn't Napoleon then send out people to find out what had happened? Uh, why did he okay. simply sit and wait? 
Well, I'm certainly, like I say, I'm not a French apologist because the other thing he failed, or the French failed to do, was to find out where the Prussians had gone. Now, again, was it the commander-in-chief's job to order reconnaissances in all directions? No, not really. He had a chief of staff, that's the sort of job he was supposed to do. He had Grouchy, who was the commander of all his cavalry, including all the light cavalry, that's their job. Um, so the fact that there were no reconnaissance sent out, again, it was a French failing, absolutely. Was it Napoleon's failing? Well, should he have reminded, should he have checked? Yes, perhaps he should. But again, these are things that other people were primarily responsible for, and all that he should have been told is what the results of those were. So I, I'm, I'm not, like I say, I'm not trying to defend him particularly. I, what I'm trying to say is Napoleon was not in a position to do very much until he had the information that he needed. Flahou came back at seven o'clock, Napoleon immediately sent off a letter to Ney, scolding him for his lack of communication, scolding him for the way that he engaged his troops at Quatre Bras, and saying, I need information from you. And therefore, you would like to think that Ney would have gone, oh, blimey, I should have done that last night, sort of thing, and sent the information that Napoleon asked for uh, as soon as he received that letter. And he didn't receive that until about 12.30. He gave the orders for the pursuit at about one o'clock. Yeah, that's a valid point, and I'm not going to argue that. I, I, I fully agree with Andrew in, in everything, apart from the fact I say that I just think that he, Napoleon could have been a lot more proactive, that's all I'm saying. Yeah, and like I say, I, couldn't, I wouldn't necessarily argue with that, but of course, I think something we're going to talk about earlier, uh, later on is, of course, yeah. what sort of state of mind Napoleon was in uh, on that morning anyway. Um, and uh, I don't want to broach that subject now. Um, I guess... The key thing often is that anyone, you know, what we would call an armchair general can sit down and say, well, what was Napoleon doing on the morning of the 17th? All these people have criticized him. Absolutely right. Why didn't he do something more positive? Uh, and I guess what I'm trying to say is there are reasons why he had to wait. Yeah. There are other things he might have done, but at the end of the day, he needed information before he could make the next decision rather than go herring off doing one thing or another, not knowing if he was, marching you know into a trap yeah yeah I, I fully take that i just and i fully understand that it's very easy for us to criticize and that's why i try not to do too much of that but on this occasion i just i just look at napoleon thinking he has one chance in a hundred of actually winning this campaign you don't have moments you don't have any time to hang around and wait yeah if you'd have said would the would the Napoleon of Austerlitz have waited around? Almost certainly not. Yeah, that's very true. Because this this was the purpose of his strategy that had, had played out. He he'd come so close to succeeding on the sixteenth, mm. driving these two armies apart. And it is it does seem so odd that there is this lull on, on that morning of the seventeenth. One thing that we often talk about when it comes to Waterloo itself is, of course, the weather. And there's a lot of debate about the extent to which. The thunderstorm that night before the battle prevented Napoleon from bringing out the artillery and the question of whether delaying the attack actually allowed the ground to dry out. I mean, I'm always quite sceptical about that because for those who haven't visited Waterloo and have a chance yet, the, the ground is actually clay. And so it just retains the moisture. So what's the reality when it comes to the weather? Because there's more to it than just wet ground, isn't there? I've got to say, of course, that it interfered with the operations on the 17th, the afternoon of the 17th. It might have made life really, really miserable for, for both armies on the, on the night of the 17th, 18th. Perhaps more so um, the French than the British, because of course they didn't arrive until late at night. They couldn't really get themselves sorted out, uh, perhaps quite as much as some of the British, not all, not all of them. Um, there is no doubt that Napoleon wanted to attack earlier on the morning of the 18th. The big question is, what was it? that prevented him from doing that. And everyone points towards the ground as a reason. Uh, and there is some evidence. Uh, General Drouot, who commanded the artillery, uh, he um, wrote later that he felt guilty that he recommended um, to the, um, he recommended to Napoleon that because of the state of the ground, he should delay the start because he wouldn't couldn't guarantee to get all the artillery into position. 
So there is a bit of evidence that suggests that the weather did make an impact. However, perhaps the bigger impact that the, that the weather made was that as the French approached Waterloo and people were told that they were going to stay there for the night, as far as I can see, half the army bomb burst starting looking for shelter. And certainly the guard admit that they all went looking for shelter, so they weren't concentrated. And, and I think the thing that really sells it to me, that it wasn't uh, the artillery and the mud and deploying the artillery was a problem. Um, it was the fact that the army, the French army, was not concentrated and ready for battle when Wellington, sorry, <laughs> when Napoleon wanted to attack. And the evidence really for that is Drew, uh, Duhut, who commanded the 4th Division in, in, uh, in the 1st Corps, in Delon's 1st Corps, and he categorically states that he was still marching towards the battlefield when the artillery broke out and was still moving into position as a grand battery opened fire. So even if he'd have wanted to start the battle earlier, his, his army wasn't in a position uh, to do so. And so for me, that is the cause of the weather probably, but his troops weren't ready to go at the time he wanted them. Yeah, and funny, I don't disagree with anything you've said that because I do think it's, it's more the fact that um, the troops weren't up. Um, but looking at it from the Allied soldiers' point of view, and this is the ordinary soldier, I, there are a couple of little things I just want to drop in there. One is the fact that they actually say it was a rainstorm. Hardly any of them, in fact, most of them actually categorically say there wasn't any thunder and lightning at all. It was just rain. Um, just bring that one in. But the biggest thing that they all say is that, oh, well, actually, we didn't expect the French to attack till that time at the earliest, because that's what they always did in Spain. They always had a big breakfast first. So actually, the Allied army wasn't expecting to fight any earlier from what from from that description. I th and I think that's I think that's probably quite a good point because again, the French camps do talk about waking up on the morning of the 18th and making their breakfast and and making their soup. Uh, and getting themselves ready, of course, their weapons were all wet, their powder was wet, they needed to get everything sorted out and, and ready for battle. And so uh, certainly an early start was unrealistic, uh, and the fact that it took so long to get started uh, would definitely played into, uh, into Wellington's favour. Yeah, definitely. Something else that really struck me in relation to the weather, from this is just based on my personal experience of visiting, um, which admittedly was in September, so a different point in the year, when I was out there, it rained every night, but the days were clear. But the mist just seemed to cling to the landscape and therefore, for obvious reasons, had quite an impact on the visibility. Do you think that had a role to play in things? I, I like to use the evidence from the, obviously from these different soldiers. Uh, I've seen that myself. I mean, it does, I mean, anywhere where there's sort of like wet crops or whatever, it does tend to hold this moisture down, etc. However, there is, I, I, mean, I don't know if Andrew's got it from his side, but certainly from the Allied side, I can't think of a single soldier who actually says there was a lot of low-lying fog that morning. In fact, most of them describe it as being quite a warm, clear day. Mm. The French accounts, oh, well, sorry, the British accounts I've read describe the deployment of the French. Yes. They, they describe the deployment of the Grand Battery. They deploy, they, they describe the the uh, the columns moving into into position so uh it i think it's pretty clear that uh, that the british could see the french ridge and therefore that uh, that the any idea of mist or, or fog was not an issue on on the 18th no, i agree fully another common comment about the battle is that hougamont and le Haisson were these vital breakwaters that funneled french attacks and disrupted napoleon's advance but there is a bit of an issue with that in that when you think about the range of the musket and the rifle, we're talking 80 yards, maybe 100 yards for the musket and about 300 yards for the rifles. So it's quite limited and you could easily mask them. What are your thoughts on how important Hougoumont and Le Haisson were in the course of the battle? Go on, Andrew. I'll be interested to hear your thoughts on this. Okay. Um, I, I've been thinking about this one quite a lot, actually. Um, I think at the end of the day, the point you make about the ranges of the weapons is theoretically true, 
but there are plenty of uh, accounts, not from Waterloo, but from previous wars, where the French would frequently fire and other armies would frequently open fire at 500 meters. Because actually they weren't shooting at a man, they were shooting at a huge column of men. And if you think about Durland's columns, you know, huge gigantic columns, you'd only have to put your musket somewhere in the middle of them and fire and you're probably going to hit something. Um, and so I, I, I don't think that the range is such an issue because the targets, the cavalry charges to the, to the west and, and Durland's column to the east are targets who you could reasonably expect to hit beyond that. And certainly experienced soldiers, it's clear, understood that if you were firing at greater range, you had to aim above the target because the, the ball would drop down onto the target. So I don't think it's a range that's an issue. But, I, but funnily enough, I think you, you sum it up better about the funneling. Because whether those farms were occupied or not by the enemy or by your own troops, your own advance, and of course I'm talking about the French advance here, were constrained by the amount of ground between the build-up. So between Hougoumont and La Haison, La Haison and Papelot, and then of course the villages down uh, Smahain and, and, and around there. So I think that that was probably more of a problem to the French, that they weren't able to deploy their forces than the fact that they were, uh, that they were going to take casualties from there. Because although 500 meters, I think people would fire their musket, at the end of the day, I asked myself, how many people in the Haysan could actually fire out of one side of the farm? Actually, not that many. And actually the same on Hougoumont, covering between Hougoumont and La Haison, a big open area, but they had the orchard and then they had the fields with the hedges and the high hedges around. So I don't think anyone inside Hougoumont could fire or would bother firing at anyone, you know, advancing beyond the hedges of the, of the fields that lie to the east of Hougoumont. So I, had, I think it had a big funneling effect. I don't think they had a, any real tactical value. And of course, Hugomont, if the French wanted to do any sort of manoeuvre, they had to swing all the way round Hugomont um, to the west. Uh, and Wellington would have had plenty of warning uh, that that's what the French were, were doing and would have therefore had plenty of time to, um, to deploy troops in order to counter that. Yeah, I, I, I do agree with what you've said, but I would actually question one thing, is the tactical side of things. Um, if you look at Wellington, he actually sees particularly Hougoumont as a, an important point for him. Um, and I think it's largely because, as you know, there's a shallow valley behind it, which runs um, towards, uh, towards his rear, basically, around his rear. And clearly he deployed a large number of troops to ensure that valley did not actually get filled with Frenchmen at any stage during the battle. Um, and clearly, you know, we can argue whether Napoleon sort of meant to uh, send so many troops towards Hougoumont and all the rest of it, but there is clearly some importance in both Hougoumont and the capture of uh, La Haison to the French as well. So that, you know, even though we're perhaps saying, you know, that they, you, you, with the weaponry of the time, that they, they wouldn't be that important, I think they're seen as almost like forward bases very, very close to the Allied Ridge. Uh, and, you know, Napoleon's forces are doing as much to take them as Wellington's forces are to keep them. So there has to be some importance to soldiers of that time in all of those locations. Mm. I wouldn't necessarily argue particularly, but of course, if you're, if you're like, I'm sitting here representing the French point of view, mm. what, I'm what I want to do is smash up Wellington's army. That's what he wanted to do. He wanted to destroy Wellington's army so he didn't have to fight them again. Mm -hmm. And therefore he needed to get up onto the ridge and come face to face, bayonet to bayonet with the British, uh, uh, well, the Allied army, and push them off the ridge and hopefully destroy them. Actually, therefore he needed an open axis of advance. If he'd have taken Hougoumont, or if, the, if, the, if Wellington had chosen not to defend Hougoumont, the French forces would still have had to bypass it. They couldn't have, they couldn't have deployed through Hougoumont. It was just a big obstacle to them. 
it was very convenient for Wellington to put a force in there and tie down and suck in lots of French troops. But if the French hadn't bothered attacking Hougoumont, and of course several of them say, well, Ryle was told not to attack, not to, not to commit himself to an attack on Hougoumont, and, and Jerome, and Ryle says he ordered Jerome only to put a skirmish screen around it to shield it off, because if they'd have taken it, they couldn't have attacked the ridge from such close, difficult terrain, they'd have had to go around it. Well, Hugemont didn't stop you deploying around it. So it, it was very convenient for Wellington, but I think if, if, if Napoleon had taken Hugemont, it wouldn't necessarily have helped him very much because he would have still have had to put a large force around one flank or the other. And Hugemont didn't stop him doing that. Mm, I, I, I'm not so sure I agree with you on that bit. I, I personally think that it could have been a very useful forward base, particularly maybe not the buildings itself, but certainly the orchard area, etc. Because, uh, as you know, I mean, the KGL later on the battle come down and help the guards, etc., down the fields from behind. Now, there's absolutely no reason why it couldn't have been they could have deployed in the opposite way with for the French from the orchard uh, and the sort of the covered way area up that ridge, the final ridge, to take the corner of Wellington's line, should we say. And as I said, there's definitely a thought that, um, because it was in 1792, 1793, the, uh, the battle there where the French actually used the area of, of um, Hougoumont and then progressed around the back to Mer Brain, which means that they're actually turning the, around the flank of that position. You know, if you look at some of Wellington's deployments on that far, right they're actually deployed to ensure that that doesn't happen in fact he actually even ordered Merv brain to be uh, fortified and it was just the engineers didn't get around to doing it um, but you know clearly there is a fear from him of that side of his of his, of his the wing of the army being sort of swung around yeah i absolutely agree with that but Hugemon, for me hugemon wasn't going to give the french a uh, a sort of an area to form up and launch an attack on the line. It absolutely suited Wellington to hold it and let the French fight for it because it sucked in French troops. But I don't think that for the French it actually held any tactical significance. So the only thing they could use beyond Hougoumont if they took it were clouds of skirmishers. Um, and of course, clouds of skirmishers will not take a formed up defensive position on the ridge with formed up, formed up troops. So that's, that, that that's my perspective of it. I don't know what value it would have been to the French if the French had taken it. I can see the value to Wellington if he can suck in all those French troops. Um, but it, it's, like I say, it's not a springboard for an attack on the ridge. What, what is, was the, um, you know, a, a route around Hougoumont uh, to the west that, uh, that, that would have come down that, that little valley that you talk about, Gareth. Yeah, and I suppose what I suppose what I'm really saying is, is I, I'm agreeing to some extent, but I, I still think that he could have passed quite close to the west if Hugomot either wasn't defended or was taken over. So therefore, it was important in that sense because you're forcing the French to do a very wide sweep otherwise. Yeah. Okay. And I'd say I'm I'm playing the French, the devil's advocate, the French advocate, oh, the, devil's, like, the devil's advocate a, li a little bit. But I yeah. like to say I, I'm I'm reasonably convinced by my own arguments. But then I would be, wouldn't I? <laughs> we mentioned this earlier actually a lot is often made of napoleon's ill health during the campaign and the way in which that may or may not have affected his decision making there are certainly points where napoleon was conspicuous in his absence um, the uncertainty of and, and lack of communication um, surrounding the arrival of Durban's corps at ligny poses some questions and we've touched on that briefly already because that was the moment then his strategy was realizing itself. He wasn't there to capitalize. And there are big questions about the extent to which Ney was or was not allowed autonomy over the French cavalry that charged Wellington's position in the afternoon. How much truth do you think there is in the suggestion that Napoleon's health affected the outcome of the campaign? Yeah. Right. Well, what about accounts? Accounts tell us Grouchy says on the 17th that Napoleon was suffering badly from hemorrhoids. Um, and uh, when he visited the battlefield uh, on the morning of the 17th, he rode in a coach carriage until he got to the battlefield and then he got onto his horse. And the reason he did that was because he was suffering from hemorrhoids. Um, 
Jerome, his own brother, says uh, that on the night of the 17th, i.e. before the battle, he had a lengthy treatment for his hemorrhoids from which he was suffering. Um, so there are, there are two contemporary witnesses that say that, that, that Napoleon was suffering from, uh, from hemorrhoids. And that is generally the condition that people talk about. Um, and who am I to say that was wrong? I can't say that was wrong. But at the end of the day, to be fair, Wellington, sorry, Napoleon had spent a long time in the saddle. He was up early on the morning um, of the 15th. He rode all day. He then rode during the, 7th, uh, the 16th. He was at the battle. He spent a lot of time in the saddle. And if his hemorrhoids were really, really bad, and I don't know how much experience you have with hemorrhoids, of course, um, then I can't believe that he would, have, he would have been able to do that if they were so bad. Now, uh, Henri Housset, who's quite a, I'm sure you know, is a quite a, a respected French historian, he suggests that actually uh, Napoleon was suffering from Ischuria, which is a urinary uh, disease. Uh, and he bases on that that, what, that the symptoms of, of this um, include periods of apathy. And it's on that basis that he said it was actually this that he was suffering from, it was this that affected his, his performance, but that his activity during those few days showed that it wasn't so bad that, that, that it affected his performance. I, he still had the energy, he still was driving everything going, driving everything along. But on the day, as we've already said, you know, this wasn't the Napoleon Auschwitz and, and Young. Uh, so what was wrong? I think perhaps the clues are in Napoleon's own writing, where he says things like, I felt fortune had deserted me. Uh, my confidence in my star was waning. And, and he had lost that confidence of Auschwitz and Jena. You know, at the end of the day, he'd lost a campaign. He'd been thrown out of Russia. He'd lost a campaign of 1813. He'd lost the campaign of 1814. He was actually on a bit of a roll <laughs> of defeats. Um, and he probably understood the, uh, the, you know, the probably insurmountable problems that he had of maintaining his throne, even though he made the effort to come back. You know, a large percentage of the population were against him. And of course, there were the huge armies gathering around Europe that, that, um, that were, were threatening to invade. So maybe he felt in, right inside, he didn't think he was actually going to, to be able to do this. The last point I'd make, interestingly, is I don't want to discuss the, the real value of Napoleon's memoirs. Um, bear in mind that they were dictated from memory and not from, from uh, any sort of um, paperwork or communication or anything like that. He, what he says in his memoirs effectively is that he had delegated uh, control of the battle to Ney and says Ney was just the man to do that under my supervision. First Corps, Second Corps and the cavalry apparently were put under Ney's direct command and Napoleon only maintained control over uh, the Sixth Corps and the Imperial Guard. And Napoleon says that he spent most of his battle concerned about the approach of the Prussians. And that's where his attention was turned. Now, I know that lots and lots of people out there would turn around and say, yeah, well, he would say that, wouldn't he? What's my argument counter that? None. They might absolutely be right. All right? So, you know, the, the truth is, of course, we don't, we don't know. And, and I guess, you know, that's probably the best I can do for you. I'll come back a little bit if I can. Um, I don't disagree with the hemorrhoids. Uh, I, you know, there's absolutely no reason to disbelieve that statement. Um, but do I believe he was doing a Rod Steiger on the battlefield where he sort of disappears for a couple of hours into the windmill because he's exhausted and sort of in the middle of the battle, etc. And, and misses Ney's sort of redeployment of the entire cavalry corps, etc. No, I don't buy that for a second. Um, whatever he was doing, he was well aware of what was going on. You cannot ignore thousands and thousands of cavalrymen being brought from one side of the battlefield to the other before they actually get launched into battle. Um, so I, I genuinely believe that any claims for further illness uh, are largely based on probably not Napoleon himself, but other people trying to excuse perhaps a, a less than great performance, should we say, as how they see it. 
Um, because, and I've certainly read a number of, uh, I'm, I'm not uh, obviously a, a, anything to do with medical, but uh, a number of doctors have actually looked at his illnesses through history. And I've read a number of the books and actually they seem to be quite consistent in saying that, uh, you know, yes, okay, he was a middle-aged man by the time he got to Waterloo, but there was, apart from his hemorrhoids, there was nothing really wrong with the man that they know of. There was nothing obvious at that stage. Uh, it's only later that the other things come in. Um, so to me, I don't think it's a, it's a major factor on, on the battlefield. There may have been times when he was very tired, and we know there's times when, you know, troops actually march past him and he's fallen asleep in a chair or whatever. But supposedly Wellington was good at doing that as well. If you got five minutes of nap, so why not do it? You know, because you're, you're in the ho on your horse so much or whatever and, and around the battlefield. So, you know, I, I just don't, I don't get that. You know, there are other things I could actually put forward as reasons as to why I think that Napoleon failed. And I don't think it's, it's ill health, should we say. Yeah, I agree. Another key figure who's often criticised is the Prince of Orange. And his reputation, such as it was, was given quite a significant knock by some errors that he made during the Waterloo campaign, which Bernard Cornwall really exploited when he wrote Sharp's Waterloo. Do you think that that novel, Sharp's Waterloo, has influenced popular perception of the Prince of Orange? Um, the first thing I'll say is that clearly, obviously, um, the Prince of Orange was not an experienced soldier, should we say. He'd only had a limited experience of soldiership. Um, and certainly some of the decisions he, he, he tried to implement before things really got going in the campaign were a bit strange in themselves, like, you know, possibly even attacking French fortresses before the war started was one of his considerations. Um, but during the campaign, uh, it's, it's, Bernard Cornwell has just picked up on something that has been around for a long time. Um, obviously lots of British soldiers uh, looked for a scapegoat as to why their regiment had been overrun at Catra Bra. Yeah, in amongst all that sort of high grass, etc. Um, and I'm afraid to say that it became quite the thing to blame the Prince of Orange for everything that went wrong at, at Catra Bra, particularly. Uh, and after that, any, any disaster of any sort gets blamed to the Prince of Orange. Uh, so I do have some sympathy for the poor, more poor man because he may well have made some bad decisions. He may well have caused some of these things to happen. This, and there is some evidence for that. But clearly he becomes, you know, if, if, if anything goes right, it's Wellington. And if anything goes wrong, it's the Prince of Orange. And, and that's how, how all of the actual accounts are written from that period uh, intensely. And, you know, really, he gets a really bad press, except from the Belgians and the Dutch themselves. Because funny enough, I was reading only yesterday a, a new account I just found of him riding into Brussels two days after the battle to be cheered by the populist as the absolute hero, che being cheered more mm. than Wellington. Interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And he was wounded, so he had that to show off as well. Exactly. Yes. So he could be a brave soldier. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I haven't got much to add to that, really. What I just find, as I just contemplate this, first, I mean, bearing in mind he was only 23 mm. um, and he was a corps commander. Um, how much was he trusted by Wellington? I think actually the evidence there is what, where was his corps at Waterloo? There was one yeah. division over there. There's one division over there. There's another division here. Wellington effectively split his corps up by division and spread it from one end of his line to the other um, so that he he wasn't he really didn't have the scope to do anything totally disastrous because he never really had control over more than the, the, whichever division he was at at that particular yes. time. Yeah. And what's also quite telling is that when you look at where Wellington put the troops that he really trusted, namely his old Peninsula War battalions, they weren't, they, none of them were given to, I don't think, were given to the Prince of Orange and his corps. The vast bulk of them were kept in the reserve, which was under his personal command. Yeah, yeah absolutely. And, uh, and yeah. that's what you'd expect from a, a you know, a sensible commander uh, that, like Wellington, who knew, of course, knew the, the, the Prince extremely well from, from, you know, the couple of years he spent in the peninsula. Um, so Wellington was just doing the opposite. I don't think anyone can say he wasn't a brave man in, 
you know, he led his troops forward at the end of the battle and got wounded. Um, but obviously, he, as, as Gareth said, he, he, his level of experience was was far, far below any of the uh, any of the British sort of division or let alone a corps commanders. It was a, his appointment to command that corps was essentially political. Well, of course, he he was commanded the whole uh, army before Wellington turned up and was made a field marshal of the, the Netherlands army by, by, by the king. So uh, I, I'd be interested to know the extent to which his nose was put out of joint by that. And, th and then you could reflect on what would have happened if, if the Prince of Orange had commanded the Allied army at Waterloo. <laughs> oh, don't, don't, don't even go there, please. <laughs> <laughs> I had a feeling you were going to say that. Let's move on then. Military historians love to talk about turning points and there have been plenty of attempts to war game Waterloo and work out whether Napoleon could have won and what the crucial mistakes were. What for you were the was the, the one real turning point in the campaign? Well, I don't know whether you'd agree with me or not, Andrew, but my, my, no matter what you say about the 17th and what actually Napoleon could have done or should have done or whatever, but without getting into that, I always see that the 17th is the day that the campaign is lost. And I can't really put it any clearer than that in a sense, because it, there's no way around uh, the fact that uh, it allows uh, Blücher to take himself back to a point where he knows he can support Wellington. And one of the things that perhaps that some people don't always realize is that yes, Wellington knew where he was possibly going to stand for the battle. He'd seen that battlefield a year before, but also Blücher knew where that battlefield was. So Wavre isn't actually just a stab in the dark, it's on the road to, uh, to, to um, Brussels. It's actually, he knows it's only about 10 to 15 miles uh, to the east of the position that Wellington has actually previously said, if I have to retreat from the, front, from the uh, sort of frontier, that's where I'm going to stand. So there is actually coordination between them even before this stage. And unfortunately, all that Napoleon has achieved on the 16th, on the 17th, the two of them actually do what they have planned to do if they're forced to retreat and actually still coordinate with each other. That's exactly what they did. Okay, Zach, I'm, I'm really going to disappoint you now, but I agree with Gareth here. Um, the 17th was definitely the turning point, but I'll just go one step further because I know we don't want to get drawn into what orders Grouchy had uh, and whether he should have marched to the sound of the guns and all that sort of stuff. But for me, if even at lunchtime on the 17th, if Napoleon had given him some decent orders, then I still think that the French could have won because his orders, and we've seen them, we've written them, they're copies everywhere, sent him in pursuit of the Prussians to follow them and tell me what they were doing. At no stage did he say attack them. He couldn't possibly. He was outnumbered about three to one, Bush's force was. Uh, Napoleon said, make sure you've got a line of retreat sorted out. Keep your troops concentrated. So Napoleon accepted that the Prussians could turn on Grouchy and destroy him because they were big enough to do that. What he never said was you must ensure that the Prussians don't interfere with the battle that I'm going to have with Wellington in front of, of Brussels. If he would have said, if he had said that, even those people that think Grouchy was a terrible choice would have had to accept that with the size of force, he could have put himself between uh, Blücher um, and Wellington and at least tied down a fair proportion of the Prussian army and that would have had a big effect on the Battle of Waterloo without a shadow of a doubt. So actually, yes, agree it was the 17th, but the, the key point is the orders that Grouchy had from Napoleon um, that, that made the difference in the way that Grouchy acted. I would agree with that and I would just add one comment to say if only Napoleon had actually told Grouchy he was going to fight a battle. Well, he did. Well, uh, he, t he told Grouchy that he was going to fight Wellington uh, in front of Brussels. And that was part of Grouchy's defense to Gerard. When Gerard said, listen, there's a huge battle over there. We must go and, and, and take part. Grouchy said, yes, of course there's a battle, 
Napoleon told me he was going to go and fight Wellington. And that is clearly what he was doing. He did not order me to march to join him because he was big enough and felt confident enough to beat Wellington on his own. So, so Grouchy knew that, that Napoleon was going to fight Wellington or planned to fight Wellington, providing Wellington mm -hmm. stood. And therefore, that was part of the reason he didn't feel compelled to march to the sound of the guns, because Napoleon had already said, I'm going to fight a battle. Okay, your job is to pursue the Prussians. So, um, so there we go. No, I would agree with you. I, I would just put a slight caveat on that and say, it, his comment is, I will actually fight a battle if, effectively, if Wellington stands. So, at the end of the day, the other point is that Grouchy could have just thought it was a rearguard action. Okay, well, I don't want to get the, the, the big argument then becomes, you know, should Grouchy have marched to the sound of the guns? Um, and that's quite a well-rehearsed argument. And that's something I've really looked at in detail. And even since I wrote my book, I've focused a bit more on that uh, and looked at the French tactical doctrine on marching to the sound of guns. And it absolutely says that it was not Grouchy's job to march the sound yeah. of guns. He had his own separate mission. He had his own force with it to carry that out. He knew there was going to be a battle fought. If he'd have marched to the sound of the guns, he'd have let go of the Prussians. And he was specifically told, don't break and don't lose sight of the Prussians. Yeah. And he would have done that if he'd have marched to the sound of the guns. So, um, you know, he was right not to march the sound of guns. Napoleon was wrong in not giving him clear orders that would have stopped the Prussians or at least a proportion of them from interfering at Waterloo. Yeah, well, I, I, on that part, I'll agree with you. One argument that you might not agree with, and I'm interested in your thoughts on this, is something that's been put forward by Charles Esdale, who's made the argument that Waterloo, in effect, was a glorious irrelevance, in the sense that there was such a vast force massing on France's borders that defeat on a scale of Waterloo was bound to happen at some point anyway. Do you think that's a fair assessment? <laughs> My answer is not very helpful because what I try not to do is what ifs, and this is a what if, uh, because we don't know because it didn't happen. So you, the question is if, well, if Napoleon had won at Waterloo, if he destroyed um, Wellington's army and then perhaps had fought the Prussians again and beaten them, there's a big what if, uh, and had occupied Brussels, would, would the Belgians have come back to support him? Um, would he then have been able to redeploy what was left of his army, having fought all those those intense battles, to be able to repulse those other those other armies that were amassing that you you spoke about? Um, and the answer is I I don't know. He didn't have the strength to fight them all and beat them all, but uh, whether the other allies would have had the determination and the political will. To continue the war, that is a, a slightly different question. So, could he have militarily beaten all the armies massing on the borders? Almost, almost certainly not. But did those countries have the political will to depose Napoleon a second time, given that you know, the country had overthrown Louis um, and accepted Napoleon back? Um, that is a that's a really difficult question. And so, the answer is militarily not. But politically, would those armies have then, having seen the destruction of two of their fellow armies and the occupation of Belgium, would Tsar Alexander, who was the one that really pushed the 1814 campaign all the way to Paris, would he have wanted to do that again? I'm sort of not convinced, but we just don't know. Right. Well, actually, funny enough, I'm going to disappoint you, Zach, because I don't disagree with Andrew much at all. Um, I, uh, the first thing I will say, though, is, uh, I know Charles Esdale quite well. He's a good friend of mine. Um, but he does like to throw a hand grenade into the room once in a while. And this is one of his hand grenades, because at the end of the day, he spends too much time on Waterloo not to think it's important, because uh, he's written quite a lot on the subject, and as you know, he's done his walks and all the rest of it. Um, however, my, my comment is along is green largely with Andrew, is that militarily, yeah, he had no chance. But diplomatically... You look at things like Francis. Could he have been bought off with states in Germany? Could Alexander have been bought off with Poland? You know, before you know it, these two who are probably less 
desperate to march all the way to Paris again and take the losses and uh, that would definitely have occurred on the way, I do wonder. And you know, if you know, we know you know Wellington was commanding Britain's only army effectively at the time, and the Prussians were bankrupt. So at the end of the day, they would have struggled to have keep the kept the fighting going for any length of time. Um, you know, I can see ways that it could he could have come to some sort of agreement with the others. I'm not saying there would have been a permanent sort of solution because clearly, uh, unfortunately, wars seem to follow Napoleon, whether, whether you believe he's the instigator or the, or the one that just had to deal with them. But at the end of the day, wars seem to follow him at least. I would, I would simply say that you know, it's, it's not a foregone conclusion that he couldn't have come out of the mess smelling of roses. And one final question from me. What for both of you is the significance of Waterloo on a personal level? Well, personally, I think it is a one of those major full stops in history. Um, you know, it it may have occurred for lots of reasons that shouldn't have happened in a sense, but it actually had a huge effect. You know, I mean, let's be honest, it's very rare for a single battle to effectively win a complete campaign, which is what it really did. Um, because the French defence of France itself fell apart because of it. Um, and although you can say um, that the period after was certainly not a period without wars within Europe, but they did manage to agree this sort of Congress system that meant that wars didn't actually sort of become pan-European you know, for a long period. It was virtually 100 years before we had a pan-European war and I just think, in a sense, the, ba the battle and the, the sort of the whole diplomatic world it engendered straight afterwards with the, the Congress system is, is something that actually helped Europe a huge amount through the, the next best part of 100 years. OK, and, and again, I, I, I absolutely agree. It, it was a, a huge turning point in, in history because, of course, as a result of that, um, we saw the rise of Prussia uh, and eventually United Germany. So, you know, history, European history would certainly have been different if, if Napoleon had won. Um, again, we, we can't speculate on, on what, the, what would have happened then. I mean, to me, funnily enough, I, I mean, it was the first Napoleonic battle I, I knew about, I learned about when I was a, a teenager. Uh, and it sparked an interest um, in Waterloo and the Napoleonic Wars that have lasted and, uh, you know, all through my life, given me an interest, uh, given me a fascination, uh, it's given me an opportunity to, to write about my passion. Um, so it, I suppose I, I say it had a huge, uh, a huge impact on my life uh, as, as, uh, as uh, many other things. Yeah, except the only, the only difference for me, Andrew, is I started being an, an ex-Navy, I started with Nelson, but I, I always say that when I became an old, older teenager, I somehow came ashore and I started following the army instead of the Navy in their, their accounts. I guess I, you can only read so many naval accounts because it's all about sort of, you know, rough seas and shipwrecks and everything else. And there's, and there's only so many of those you can read, I'm sorry. Well, I have to admit that my own regiment didn't make it to Waterloo. Um, I was in the Worcester, the Worcester Regiment, which was a 29th of foot, and they were on their way to the to the battle. Um, but they were only halfway there when the battle was fought. So they marched down to Paris, but unfortunately, Waterloo did not make its way onto our, our colours. No, no. Unfortunately, for a lot of regiments, it's, it's, it's the crying shame for them, isn't it? Because unfortunately, it's, it's the one battle that everyone seems to know about. Yeah, absolutely. Andrew, Gareth, it's been an absolute joy doing this interview. I've, I've absolutely loved the back and forth between the two of you. I'm sure our listeners have as well. Thank you so much for joining me for Waterloo Remembered. No problem. Very welcome. That was the historians Gareth Glover and Andrew Field joining me to Mythbust Waterloo. You can find details of Gareth's multi-volume Waterloo archive, along with his other works, at www garethglovercollection.com and Andrew Field's work Waterloo the French Perspective is available to order online now. If you have any questions or comments remember that you can get involved on Twitter using the hashtag Waterloo Remembered or in the forum at thenapoleonicwars.net where you'll find a dedicated room specifically for Waterloo Remembered discussion. Join me tomorrow when I'll be not only talking to the historian Will Fletcher 
but we will also be starting the Voices from the Battlefield series, 41 readings of eyewitness testimony from the battle, which will span the 15th, 16th, 17th and 18th, and the live tweets about the campaign will also begin. Until then, I'm Zach White. This has been Waterly Remembered from The Napoleon Assist. Take care, my friends, stay safe, and as always, thank you for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.